Protesters have taken to streets across the U.S. this summer in order to fight back against what they see as an unjust criminal justice system, one that treats people of color in prejudicial and violent ways. The concern over racial bias in policing has long been something activists were thinking about, but there's an increasing focus on the other ways racial bias might influence decisions made in America's courts and police stations. The statistics related to race in the criminal justice system is a focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media, Journalism and Film. Our guest today is Tarek Shaw. Shaw is a data scientist at the Human Rights Data Analysis Group, or HRDAG, where he cleans processes and builds models from data in order to understand evidence of human rights abuses. He was the co-author of a report released last fall that examined whether a particular risk assessment model reinforces racial inequalities in the criminal justice system. Tarek, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Could you explain what spurred this particular bit of research into this risk assessment model and what your report found? Sure. So uh, there's been interest in uh, these uh, pretrial risk assessment models in particular for for a little while now, partly because of um, how much public opposition has grown to the money bail system. And uh, because of that, these algorithmic risk assessment tools have been kind of proposed as more objective or neutral uh, alternatives to decisions by judges, which may be considered biased. And this kind of fits into to that atmosphere. So can you talk, just to, just to take a step back, just to help fill in some of the, the, the gaps for people that are new to this. I mean, I, there, there's this, this idea of what, what happens in a pretrial process. And then, and then as, you know, sort of as a the jump off of that, what does, what does a risk assessment tool do in the context of this pretrial process? Yeah. So in general, when, when a person is arrested, a court must decide, and depending on what state you live in, they'll have either one to two days to, to make this decision, uh, whether you can go home while you await the beginning of your trial, or whether uh, they need to take some kind of action, whether that's detention or some kind of supervisory condition, in order to ensure that you'll appear for your court date and and or that you will not be a uh, danger to your community during the time that the trial hasn't happened yet. So. Those decisions are being made, as I mentioned before, they, they uh, judges have historically relied heavily on bail to ensure that people appear for their court dates. Uh, there's an increasing recognition that that disproportionately harms people who are poor. And uh, so there's been interest in kind of alternatives, but um, the, basic, the basic kind of decision that either a judge or some kind of decision-making system is required to make has to do with usually one or both of those two elements that I mentioned. So either whether a person is going to be a danger to their community or whether they are going to flee the jurisdiction and escape accountability. That's kind of the decision in front of us, historically made by judges. More and more uh, judges are getting information from these risk assessment tools as, a, as just additional information to make that decision. So are these tools like a technology that that they're relying on to help them understand what the possible behaviors of, of particular defendants might be? 
Yeah, exactly. Um, and and they so so these are tools that that will take in data about characteristics of the arrested person. So things like their age and sex and other demographic information, as well as things like their arrest history or other kind of encounters with uh, the court system. And I mentioned those kind of two high-level principles, like danger to the community and the risk of flight. In practice, like those are kind of fuzzy concepts that need to be made concrete when we're talking about actual measurements. And so the way those things get measured uh, is in terms of danger to the community. Those who develop these risk assessment tools look at uh, rearrest. So was a person who was going to face trial, were they rearrested before their trial concluded? Sometimes that's like narrowed down somewhat. So maybe in a given jurisdiction, they'll only look at felony rearrests or violent rearrests. Um, and there's all sorts of kind of logic that goes into what counts in each of these categories. Similarly with uh, flight risks, that's also a, a little bit fuzzy in some ways. And so what we, what we can measure is failure to appear for a court date. I was interested in, you talked about fuzzy there, and uh, you talk about a definition of fairness. So what is, that? which seems like that, that's, a, that's not something I hear statisticians talking about very much, having done 150 MC shows. Hey, hey, hey. And the way that you're... <laughs> No offense, John. Um, but how do you? How do you? What is the definition of fairness in in a in a risk assessment model? Yeah, that is an excellent question, and uh, in fact, one that is uh, there are multiple definitions of fairness uh, in this context, and I will give a couple of examples. Um, so, so one is just kind of maybe kind of going back to what these models look like. They're very often logistic regressions or some other kind of uh, predictive model which will classify people into, um, you know, yes, they will reoffend or no, they will not or something like that. Um, and so within that context, there's, there's kind of basic notions that I think anybody uh, without any kind of statistics background might be able to pick up with things like demographic parity. So do black individuals who, who are appearing before the court are there similar decisions made about them versus white individuals? So in practice, we tend to rely on somewhat more complicated definitions of fairness. The idea being that, well, maybe the examples will help. So, so in addition to demographic parity, which we talked about, there's, there's things like equal false positive rates. So, so the argument here is that the, the biggest cost of one of these uh, risk assessment decisions is when somebody has to be incarcerated or otherwise supervised as a result of that score. And so false positive here is somebody who is determined to be high risk by this tool, but who in fact would not have gone on to, to reoffend or miss their court date if uh, they were let go home. So that's that's one example. Another example is just equal calibration across different race groups. So that means like if you, uh, so your logistic regression uh, puts out the number like 0.47, so 47% likelihood that you're going to reoffend or something. Um, and so does that score mean the same thing for white people who get that score versus black people who get that score? So if everybody who got a 0.47 among the, the white group did about 47% of them end up reoffending versus similar numbers for the black group. There's a, so we have equal calibration, equal false positive rates. We also have a similar notion of equal false negative rates. 
that is, um, people who did go on to either reoffend or miss their court date, how often were they actually labeled high risk versus low risk? And are those rates equal across race groups or other protected characteristics? The kind of challenge, well, one challenge is just what I mentioned, that there's multiple different definitions and there's not uh, an official correct definition of the fairness. And uh, in addition, the, the examples I just happened to give, there's like a, an important result in fairness, which is that uh, they're under most realistic circumstances, they are mutually incompatible. That is, uh, you can't meet all three of them at the same time. So, so, so it's, uh, which I think makes sense from a non-statistical perspective. People have different notions of what fairness means, I think. Uh, but it does make it challenging to talk about fairness in these contexts. And I just wanna kind of add so everything I've been talking about is kind of fairness within, within the system defined by the model, like uh, what were the outcomes that are measured in the model and what were the data inputs that went into the model and they're kind of taking, taking those data as kind of a given. Uh, a kind of a separate level uh, of analysis here for fairness is whether there is bias inherent in the data itself, whether these measures are fair measures of, of the thing that we're interested in measuring. Um, and so that's kind of goes back to before where I said we have these notions of danger to the community or flight risk. But in practice, when we're talking about creating a regression model, we need these uh, measures and, and what we have is rearrest or failure to appear for court. And so often there's problems with both of those measures. Uh, a lot of people fail to appear not because they fled the jurisdiction, but because they forgot or the court date got changed and they had moved. So the postcard that, that uh, they received, they never got it. Uh, and similarly with re-arrest, uh, the assumption there, if you're using that data, is that arrest is an unbiased measure of criminality or dangerousness. And uh, there's a lot of evidence that, that it's not that's not the case. Uh, yeah. So, so what did you learn? I mean, let's get back again to the the kind of the punchline to the work that you've done. You've you've helped us frame the idea of what a risk assessment model is and how that's being used in the context of establishing or evaluating fairness. And then, so what now? now <laughs> what did you see? Right. So, uh, so in this particular research, we were looking at a tool used in New York City to determine eligibility for a supervised release program. This is kind of an alternative to being detained while you await your trial. And uh, so the idea was that individuals who get a low, low risk score would become eligible for this supervised release program, whereas those who received a high score would not. And the alternative is that you were detained. We, as I mentioned, we, we looked at some of these different fairness measures that I mentioned, like uh, false positive rates and accuracy across race groups. And the particular model met some of those, but not others. So, so it had much higher false positive rates for, uh, for black and Hispanic people than it did for white people. And also, it, and in terms of demographic parity, uh, also was much more likely to give black individuals a higher risk score than white individuals. One kind of uh, deeper thing that, we, that came out of that was, uh, was a couple of things that we noticed about the data and the process used to build the model itself. So in terms of the data, um, we had that question about whether, whether uh, in this case, felony rearrest was the, was the outcome variable that the, that the developers were modeling in their regression, whether felony rearrest is a fair measure of, uh, of dangerousness. 
And uh, that was an important question for us because when we looked into it a little bit, the training data for this model had all been collected during the height of New York's stop and frisk program. And uh, sometime after that data was collected, New York courts themselves had determined that this was an unconstitutional program because it was disproportionately applied against Black and Hispanic people. And something like 87% of people who were stopped under stop and frisk were, uh, were Black or Hispanic. So unfortunately for us, I guess, uh, the, the arrest data that, was, that, we, that we got, that was the training data for the model, did not include information about whether each arrest was a result of a stop and frisk or something else. However, we were able to kind of look into, like make some inference about how, how many of these uh, arrest uh, outcomes could have been affected by the stop and frisk program. So we kind of, we looked back at what the most common arrests resulting from a stop and frisk stop were, and they were either drug related or weapons related. And so then we went back to our data and found that uh, just under 40% of the arrests in our outcome data was either drug related or weapons possession related. So we can't say that all of those were stop and frisk, but uh, we can guess that a good number of them were because this was during that program. We also found, so one of the things that we had to do when we, were, when we were writing this report was attempt to recreate the model, the scoring model that's used. Um, so we kind of read the paper and it goes through, it's a logistic regression and so it kind of goes through the variables and so forth and we, we had the same training data as the original developers did, so we were trying to replicate their model at the beginning. And we ran into some challenges. We, we had the same train and test data uh, split as, as the developers did. And we got the same coefficients uh, for each of those, uh, each of those uh, different pieces of the data. And uh, that all made sense. But then when we looked at the final model that, that New York was using, the point scores that they gave for each characteristic did not match up with the coefficients that we'd, we'd found in the regression. And in fact, uh, appeared to be kind of picked and chosen from the different splits of data. So there were like some coefficients that were, uh, that were found fitting the model to the training data, some coefficients that came again from the test data and some that came from fitting the model to the entire data set. So that I don't think we would have known if we had not tried to, to replicate the model to begin with. Once we saw that, we contacted the developers and tried to get more information about what was going on. And to the best that we can find out is that there was, a, there was like a decision process by a committee of like, oh, this looks good, that doesn't look good. Mm-hmm. And they'd kind of um, worked their way to some scores that way. And I point that out because that's a little bit separate from from the types of fairness that we've, we're talking about. But mm-hmm. um, I think these tools often get packaged as like an objective or neutral right. thing. And here we see an illustration that that packaging is really hiding a lot of kind of political decisions that are going on. You're listening to Stats and Stories. And today we're talking with Tarek Shaw of the Human Rights Data Analysis Group. So I'm gonna go back to that sort of thing you were saying there at the end. Why should someone who is not a statistician, someone who is not engaged in activism around criminal justice, you know, what is the takeaway for for just the layperson as far as it relates to your to this this particular report? Why should my mother or my best friend or my colleagues here care about what you found in this report? Right. I would maybe think of that in a couple of ways. So one that I would think about, I think, is going back to what I was just saying, where 
uh, often kind of data uh, informed tools are presented as kind of a, a more objective alternative to some other procedure. Uh, I think it's important for all of us, regardless of where we're working, to be somewhat critical of that because often uh, that's just a way of kind of maybe sneaking in whatever kind of biases uh, we already had in through this kind of packaging. And I think that applies not just to, to uh, incarceration decisions, but often any kinds of automated decision-making systems. I also think just I, it's maybe a lot of us are concerned about both policing and incarceration right now. Just And so as somebody who's concerned with that, especially with pretrial incarceration, so these are people who are presumed to be innocent by the legal system, worrying about how those people are treated uh, and how decisions about their uh, their liberty is made is, uh, is like an important thing kind of on its own. And in particular, I mentioned that that um, risk assessment tools are are often positioned as um, neutral or objective alternatives to judges' decisions, which are uh, known to be biased, and there is a lot of evidence that they are. And so um, just to understand that we don't get to wash our hands of, of the bias by kind of putting it through these systems. And maybe, hopefully, uh, knowing that would lead people to think of a little bit more Hmm. So <laughs> I don't know if this is helpful or not, but there's like kind of two ways to look at this. Like, is is are the decisions kind of being are are they fair in terms of equal treatment under the law for different race groups? Another kind of level of uh, of wondering about this is whether there's kind of a larger larger issue here that's that's at play. And uh, sometimes I feel like the the idea of these risk assessment tools is to kind of push through an idea that like that there is like a, a fair way to incarcerate people who are presumed to be innocent. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and so I, I hope that seeing that the way that our, the biases that we see everywhere else in our society also sneak their way into the models and the data that we use to make kind mm-hmm. of data-based tools will force people to, to think of that larger picture and wonder what it actually means to fairly incarcerate uh, innocent people. And it seems like it's in line with a lot of research around technology that has shown that we have believed that these technologies might, as you suggested, give us like, you know, the the, the get out of jail free card, not to use <laughs> to use that unfortunate phrase, right? When it comes to this issue of, of bias, like, oh, we'll, we'll allow the AI or the technology to handle everything because it's not biased. And what we're increasingly coming to realize in whether it's search engines or video games where you have certain avatars is that the bias is built in because it's not been sort of challenged outside the technology. And it would seem like, your report is kind of suggesting when it comes to this this very important issue of incarceration of people before they are ever actually in court, right, before they go to trial, that that bias has also just sort of been built into that technology. So I just want to, like, that feels like it's sort of within the, the framework of our larger understanding of this sort of way AI has maybe not been as critically engaged with or other kinds of technologies, because we've seen them as sort of these arbiters of truth in a way that perhaps they're not. Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, right. And we see, I mean, the data that we have are generated by existing social processes. And uh, the existing social processes we have are not at all free from racial bias. And so that works its way into the data and like, as you say, into all of these different AI systems. And in the course, in this case, making very high stakes decisions about people's freedom. So, I, so what if I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna hire you now to build a risk assessment tool for me. 
So if you're, as you think about this, I, you know, there, there are cases where we see this in the banking industry. There are certain variables that are, not, that are just not, not acceptable for use in prediction as inputs to models. Are there some sort of parallels to this? I mean, if you were thinking about this as saying, I would like to try to build as fair a risk assessment tool as possible, what would be some of the steps that you would think about and that you would need to consider in doing so? So there have been people who've kind of pointed out or asked that like, or kind of defined fairness as the absence of certain predictors in kind of the way that um, I think I'm less familiar with the banking industry, but I think this is kind of part of how they like, they just don't have race as a variable and that's how they kind of deal with that. Uh, as I assume this is true in banking, it's definitely true in criminal justice data that uh, there are lots of things that uh, correlate along with race. And so you can't really remove race from uh, from your predictors. You can you can remove that one column, but you can't remove it from the zip code or from previous arrest history and stuff like that. So I would start with that. Like it's uh, not enough to kind of close your eyes and hope that you don't see race uh, because it's there. And then uh, you know I, I think it would be important to kind of uh, have like we talked about these technical definitions of fairness kind of within the model, the sorts of predictions it makes, and are they treating people equally uh, across races. As I mentioned, there are multiple different definitions and some of them might be mutually incompatible. So it's important to, if you are kind of going to go down this route, to, to pick one that makes sense for your, um, for your application. And so I kind of, I, and I don't have the, the absolute answer to this, but I kind of mentioned that like the one way to think about this is how the cost of uh, incorrect predictions is distributed across races and whether that cost, that burden is shared equally or not. And so in the case of, again, I don't want to come down on the side of one version or the other, but like in the case of these pretrial risk assessment tools, that seems to suggest something like false positive rates as like a, um, a more important thing to look at maybe because when you're uh, considered high risk, that's when you're really paying the high cost of the incorrect predictions. I'm thinking this, this, some of your findings here are really, really important, but even the phrase risk assessment modeling, I'm imagining, how do you get a journalist interested in that and what the implications are of that? Because I think this is a, th these kinds of findings are really important for people to understand, especially now. And have you seen any good coverage about your findings and, uh, how do you interest a journalist in, in this? I mean, the way that I would go about it, of course, is, you know, find somebody that was really treated unfairly in the system and tell that story. But then how do you make sure you explain the, the, what, what, what you found in the data understandable to a, a journalist who can then communicate that to the public? Yeah. So one thing I will, before I kind of go into my answer, I, this is like an interesting question because the this field that I'm talking about, kind of evaluating these fairness in terms of these technical definitions and so forth. I don't know if this is where it started, but definitely my introduction and a lot of people's introduction to it was actually uh, was through journalism. It was a story in ProPublica about the Compass Risk Assessment Tool. And that kind of set off a lot of this study. And so so in some sense, like in that case, uh, the journalists were, were ahead of me. I was learning from them. and But I think kind of you pointed out that the language itself, risk assessments, either sounds boring or, <laughs> or technical, uh, but it's also kind of a useful entry point because I think it, 
it's a term that frames the decisions that are being made or the, the scope of what decisions can be made. And so when we talk about pretrial decision making here, if we kind of frame this decision in terms of risk assessment, then the person in front of you, all they are is a possible risk. You know? um, and uh, that's, there's been some pushback against that in various places. So, so a different way to just help kind of think about what I mean when I say risk assessment frames the, the decision in a very particular way is, so another alternative might be something like needs assessment. So um, a, like I mentioned before, one of the reasons a lot of people miss their court dates is not because they got on a private jet and went to the Bahamas. It's uh, because they don't have a home address and so we're not able to receive updates about when their court date is or um, they couldn't get childcare or time off of work and so forth, or they forgot. <laughs> um, and so there's all these things that are preventable in all of these other ways, but if you only see the, the decision in front of you as a risk, you're only thinking of it in terms of, well, regardless of what the reason this person didn't show up is, that's the risk and that's the only thing I can worry about. So kind of opening, opening up that decision to, to uh, or not allowing it to necessarily be framed in terms of risk from the get-go, is is a useful mm-hmm. kind of entry point, I think. So there, this, there's a theme that that you talked about here, and that's transparency of research that came out. You know, the the importance of being able to reproduce what was done, and and it sounds like you had to do some forensic analysis to figure out what occurred in this previous work. So I, you know, what that suggests is that that uh, you you value this as part of the of what you do in your current work. And I, I just was wondering if uh, if you could give us a, a quick kind of summary of what's what's the flow that that helps ensure in in your work that you make that you make it reproducible and that you have accountability baked into it that others could follow. Yeah, that's a uh, thank you for asking that question. Um, so and it's I think important uh, it's important to lots of people right now. Like. Uh, Lots of scientists are worried about reproducibility, and I think it's particularly important to uh, folks like us at HR DAG who work in human rights, because it's possible that, well, you want to get it right, first of all, (laughs) Uh, and it's also, you want it to stand up to scrutiny because uh, you may have results that are not, that don't make people that happy. And so, so you need to be prepared for all kinds of scrutiny and attacks. And uh, one way to do that is to be very confident in, in the work that you've done. I found that like having a specific ways of working and uh, specific structures for, for how I manage a project are, are one of the best ways that I can kind of guarantee those sorts of results. And uh, in particular, like the way that we do things at HR DAG, we use a system called uh, principled data processing, where we kind of very explicitly set up our pipeline, where um, we we work on individual tasks in the pipeline. For instance, importing data from an Excel file or something is one task, and then maybe standardizing code uh, code values within the columns as, a, as its own task and reproducing a regression model that we found in a paper uh, as its own task and kind of um, having, being able to do those things distinctly so you're not worried about is the entire thing reproducible and correct, but like is this thing, is this link in the chain strong enough and then moving on to the next piece. That's helped us a lot and then uh, we kind of manage everything technically with these with make files so we've had I've had to learn a little bit of computer engineering uh, it, as a part of this job but uh, I think starting starting with that idea of breaking things up into t- tasks that can be tested individually so that um, 
you have a little bit more confidence once the project starts to get bigger and more unwieldy and you're not worried like you're not worried about the kind of code values when you're working on the model because you've already kind of tested those in an earlier step. Well, that is all the time we have for this episode. Uh, Tarek, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.